Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm adding my welcome to Nick and to Katie's. Uh, my name is Marshall Brown, I'm a senior pastor here. I'll be teaching on the passage that Sean just read for us. I do want to say welcome to everyone in the room. Also, welcome to everyone joining us online. Particular welcome to Grace Pres. Sheboygan. Uh, there's about 45, 46 women who went to our women's retreat up in uh, Wisconsin, and they're watching from a conference room with coffees and lattes uh, somewhere online up in Wisconsin. Uh, please come back. Uh, uh, we need, as a single father over the weekend, uh, if I just zone out up here just because, yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful and exhausting. It really has been great, but I literally fell asleep last night at 8.30 uh, and then had to get back up and work. So let me pray before we look at it, but hello to you. Um, hello, uh, Wisconsin. Let me pray uh, for us, and uh, we'll look at this passage. God, we come now to uh, witness the end of Joshua's life and these words that he has for the nation of Israel at the end of his life. And God, I know that as their words for them, they are words for us, we pray then that his words and the words of our mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, that you would penetrate, that you would cause us to love you more because we have been with you and with your people this morning. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name, amen. If you're listening to any of my sermons over a length of time, you know that I love uh, Winston Churchill. I love Winston Churchill, and he lived such a full and fascinating life, uh, really one of the great lives in the last hundred years or so. Uh, he was born in a castle, Blenheim Castle, in the line of the Duke of Marlborough, uh, and he lived a life of adventure. Uh, he was a war correspondent in Africa. He was a soldier of fortune. At one time in his life, he was a prisoner of war. During the Boer War, he was actually captured. He was a prisoner of war. He escaped. Uh, he was on the lamb. He was a fugitive from justice for a time. Uh, later in his career, he was the Secretary of Navy during the greatest debacle. He was actually responsible for the greatest debacle in the history, maybe, of the, of the British uh, Navy. Uh, Gallipi, Gallipi, I'm saying that wrong, uh, right outside of Istanbul. Uh, he spent, because of that failure, he lost his office and spent over a decade uh, basically without political influence in the wilderness, as they say. Uh, he was an accomplished painter, a really accomplished painter, actually. He was actually a licensed bricklayer. He was a card-carrying member of the Bricklayers' Union. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> uh, he was twice the Prime Minister of Great Britain. I mean, this guy lived a life. But perhaps most fascinating is despite all those accomplishments, perhaps his greatest accomplishment were the speeches he gave in the 1940s and maybe particularly in 1940, which is in his late 60s at the time prompting the American correspondent Edward Morrow, often quoted other folks, JFK and others have said this, uh, but Morrow said this, he mobilized the English language and sent it to war. Well, today we come to another figure who lived an outsized life. In fact, in many ways, a more outsized life than Joshua because he began, he began than Churchill because he began so much lower. The life of Joshua, uh, amazing. He was born, think about this, he was born a slave in Egypt which means he would have witnessed all of the plagues. Uh, he would have been there, either he or his father painted a blood over the doorframe of the home on the night of the Passover. He would have heard the shrieks of the children, the fathers of Israel during the Passover. With all of God's people, he would have literally got up one day and walked away from his job, walked away from his home as a slave. They call this the Exodus, the major event in the Christian Old Testament. Uh, after that, he would have crossed over the Red Sea. He would have seen the Red Sea part. He would have walked over the Red Sea on dry land and watched it consume the uh, Pharaoh and his army. 
After this, he became an assistant to the leader Moses as well as a very successful general under his command, Joshua did. When they got to the promised land, they came out of Egypt. They came up to the promised land, what we now know as Palestine or Israel. And they sent 12 spies in, can we take this land? And Joshua was one of two spies who said, yes, we can do it. But 10 others said, there's no way we can do it. And so they, uh, as punishment for not believing, the nation spent 40 years. So for 40 years, Joshua, without a home, just walked around the wilderness. But after 40 years of walking in the wilderness, because of his faithfulness, even Moses was not allowed in, but Joshua and Caleb were. He is allowed the one person who saw, he and Caleb were the two people along with, uh, the only two who saw both the Exodus and the Promised Land. He led the people over the Jordan River. It was, again, on dry land. He conquered the land, that's chapters 6 to 12, and then he, maybe a greater than his military uh, prowess was his administrative prowess in dividing up the land between 12 tribes. This guy lived a life. Joshua did. Now, a couple of interesting asides. Uh, one, my rough math suggests that he did not inherit leadership. He was not the single leader, the sole leader, until he was 80 years old. Uh, so how about that for retirement? Uh, his, actually, his greatest triumphs were in his 80s. He died at 110, uh, like Churchill before him, who was elected prime minister for the first time at age 65. But then there's this, a little free leadership advice, no charge here. Uh, what appears to be his only mistake, he failed to raise up a successor. Moses had raised him up, uh, but Joshua, based on what we know of what happens in the nation, uh, did not raise up a leader after he died. Now, if you've been with us, we have been studying the book of Joshua. If you were with us last week, we were in Joshua chapter 6, and now we're in Joshua chapter 23. We moved really fast there, didn't we? I'll explain that in a little bit. There's no good reason except for the time, and I'll I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. I'll summarize. But Joshua 23 is the end of Joshua's life. At some level, he has come out of retirement to make this speech because he knows he is about to die. Verse 1 says, I am old and well advanced in years. Verse 14 says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Translation, I'm about to die. And at the end of his life, his one concern, his one concern is that the nation of Israel would remain faithful and keep moving in their calling. That is his one concern, that the nation of Israel be faithful and keep moving in their calling. And to that end, he gives two speeches, one in chapter 23, one in chapter 24, which we will look at next week. And like Churchill's speeches, which were aimed at the nation of England, the people of England, these speeches are designed to give heart, to give courage to the people of Israel. And so today, Joshua 23. Like any good speech, any good sermon, there is a main point for Joshua, and it's mine too, as I talk about his sermon, his speech. And that point is this, be faithful and keep moving into the calling which God has called you. Be faithful and keep moving. He has a main point that is supported by various lines of reasoning, and in this case, I owe my outline to a a sermon preached over 40 years ago by a British man named David Jackman, and here's the outline. Be faithful and keep moving by doing these four things, looking back, looking forward, looking in, and looking up. But first, looking back, looking back. Look with me to verses 2 and following. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Joshua is reminding the leaders to remember all that they have seen, 
all that they have experienced, all that they have seen God do. Now, since I'm skipping so much, let me, let me summarize and outline the book of Joshua. The, actually, the verses that Sean read that we have printed from uh, Joshua 21, verses 43, 44, and 45, that's actually an outline of the book. But let me give it to you this way. The first, it's 24 chapters. The first five chapters, 1 to 5, are preparing to enter the land, preparing to enter the land. Chapters 6 through 12 of Joshua are conquering the land, beginning with the battle of Jericho. We looked at that last week, but conquering the land, 6 to 12. And then 13 to 22 are dividing the land among the 12 tribes. One reason we're moving so fast and skipping those, because there's just excruciating detail about land and landscape and boundaries, and it's really not something that's terribly interesting uh, for us. But for the nation of Israel, those chapters were immensely helpful and encouraging. Because all the, every allotment, every name of a river or a boundary or a boundary marker was a pointer to God's faithfulness. He had given us these promises. And it goes into great detail. I mean, too much for us. But for the Israelites, it was just like, this is, it's, it's not just this general land of promise, but it's the specific. It's this line. It's this river. It's this brook. This hill. And then chapters 23 and 24, these closing speeches. Now that you're in the land, now that the land's been divided, 23 and 24, about how to be faithful once you're in the land and keep moving. Joshua is saying, take a moment. Remember what God has done. Look back and remember how God has been faithful. God told us he would give the land, and he did. You know, it's so important. It is so important for all of us to look back, to remember the ways that God has been faithful as individuals, as families, as a church, to look back and remember. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. This is the 20th year of our church, Grace Presbyterian. We have these stones of remembrance. You can pick one of these up. And as a reminder, just the ways that God has been faithful to this church. If you don't know the history, it's been thick and thin, good and bad, but God has been faithful to this church. And these, these stones are a reminder to pray, but they're also a reminder God has been faithful to our church. Stones of remembrance. As I said during that sermon, there's a sermon on crossing the Red Sea. I said this about remembrance. Remembering adds fuel to faith. Remembering dispels worry. Remembering crushes fear. Remembering makes you grateful. Remembering moves you. It moves you. I've personally experienced this. I've told you before that my besetting sin or one of them is fearfulness, fearfulness. And so there's been a couple of times in my life where I sensed that God was calling me to do something, but I was afraid, afraid to move. One of those was Coming here. I was living in Los Angeles, just married, uh, living in Los Angeles, California, and this church called Grace Presbyterian kept calling. I was like, I feel like God is calling me, but I am scared. I'm scared. And the way I got through that and got here was, frankly, I remembered back all the times. I look back on my life, I was like, God has always been faithful to me. He's always met me where I've gone, where he's called me to go. And so that remembering is actually what got me over the line, which moved me. So the point of this sermon is to look back, not just so you could have like this you know, hall of fame that you remember great things in the past. You look back so that you might move forward. To remain faithful and keep moving, you look back. But also to remain faithful and to keep moving, you've got to not just look back, you've got to look in. Look in. Look with me, verse 6 says, be strong and do all that is written in the book of the law. Then verse 8 says, you shall cling, that's an important word, cling to the Lord your God. Now, the word cling means bind. It's like solder. You know, you solder two things together so they become inseparable. Moses is saying, or excuse me, Joshua is saying, bind yourself to God. Now, there's a negative side to this command. It's actually the exact same word. Verse 12, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of those nations among you and make marriages and associate with them and they with you. 
What Joshua is doing is doing a positive negative thing. Here he's saying, cling to God. And by implication, verse 12, don't cling to these other gods. Cling to God, but don't cling to these other things. Now, the word cling has overtones of covenant and of worship. What Joshua is saying, be careful who and what you love. Be careful what you love. We know this because of the way the Hebrew structure works. It's like a, the best way to explain it is like a sandwich because between the command to cling to God and the command not to cling to uh, the foreign gods in verse 12, between those become, comes what? Verse 11, be the careful therefore to love the Lord your God. This is about love. This is about the heart. As David Howard says, verse 11, at the heart of the speech is the challenge to love God which is central to their duties and our duties as a people. Everything about exhortations to obey and to avoid pagan entanglements was in means to an end to love God. Now, the command to love God, that's rooted in Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And, of course, it's echoed by Jesus when somebody asks Jesus, what is the chief command? What is the great command? In Matthew 22, verse 36, Jesus says, the great command is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. Look in to guard what you love. Joshua's saying, watch your heart. It can be easily drawn away. Now, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Someone owes me for that reminder, by the way. Somebody owes me. Uh, but tomorrow is Valentine's Day. What is Valentine's Day about? Valentine's Day is about guarding your heart. It is about stoking the fires of your romance and of your love. That's what Valentine's Day is about. Don't forget, look to your heart, stoke the fires of love. I think the greatest biblical evocation of this is in Proverbs chapter 4, 23, by Solomon, ironically enough. Solomon says this, above all else, above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. I say ironic because sadly, Solomon, who started out, he guarded his heart. Solomon's career started out so strong. He built the temple for God. He was wise beyond his years. But then he literally lived out verse 12. Look at verse 12. That's like a biography for the second half of Solomon's life. He intermarried with pagan wives. He was drawn to them. His heart was drawn away. He didn't. He didn't guard his heart, the wellspring of life. And he drifted. Watch your heart. Look in. Now, there's a couple applications here that are actually rather direct I don't even have to think much about this. There wasn't much creativity here. Verse 12, the first, guard your heart and who you choose as a marriage partner. Who you choose as a marriage partner. I guess I'm primarily speaking to the young folks here. The Apostle Paul makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 where he says, don't be unequally yoked. Here's the reality. We don't, everybody's like, well, I can date whoever I want. Well, okay, we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, and people, uh, well, here's the reality. We don't live in a world where you do arranged marriages. And we live in a world where you literally, you only marry the people you date. That's just, you only marry the people you date in 21st century America. So feel free to go on dates, but anything serious, anything that would be called dating needs to be with believers. Why? Because the heart is the wellspring of life and you've got to guard your heart. Second, it's also pretty uh, self-evident and super important, is to identify what might tempt you, that might draw your heart away. Look with me, verse 7. It's actually basically, this is a fourfold 
uh, description of how idolatry works. He says, do not mix with these nations or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or bow down to them or serve them. There's actually five. And you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. There's not a, you know, I don't have like some bloody altar with a, you know, a statue in my closet that I'm, you know, I'm going to go bow down to. I'm, I'm not an idolater like these people probably were. We talk about this a lot, but it's important to understand. Idolatry is placing anything and putting anything in the place of God, okay? Now, Israel would have been tempted, Israel would have been tempted to worship the gods of Canaan. They had names like Moloch and Baal, okay? Those are the names, Baal, Balak, okay? And what did they worship those gods for? Fertility, prosperity, and ecstasy. That's why they worshiped, okay? Now, how different are we? What do we want? Healthy, successful children, fertility. We want prosperity. You don't even have to change the word. Ecstasy. We want to feel good. Okay? Now, I, I, I believe I can draw. I'm not going to take the whole time to do it. But I actually think I can draw a direct line from the bloody fertility rites of the ancient Near East for prosperity, fertility, and ecstasy. I believe I can draw a direct line from those bloody fertility rites of the ancient Near East to the Varsity Blues scandal of a couple of years ago. Where people paid thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes half a million dollars to get their kids into the right college so that they might be successful, so that they might be fertile, right? Prosperous and fertile. You're like, you know, Felicity Huffman, you're like, well, I'm not them. I'm not spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get my kid into Harvard. But what are we doing and prizing to make sure that our children, our grandchildren thrive. I was talking to someone who had never visited the North Shore recently, and they were just driving around. They're like, there's so many tutoring centers here. Right? The temptation to have our heart drawn away by specifically those three things, the success of our children, prosperity, and feeling good. Watch your heart. You got to look in, cling to God. Watch your heart. It is the wellspring of life. So we look in, we look back, but to be faithful and keep moving, we also, we got to look forward. Look forward. Now, we look forward in two different ways. Now, the first way to look forward is to consider the outcome of your life. Now, Joshua, I appreciate Joshua as someone who speaks for a living. I appreciate Joshua. He understands how speaking works. And he understands there's a need for, like, multiple levels of motivation. He has actually two motivations here. One's positive and one's negative. Because the reality is some of us, you know, we need, like, Oprah and, like, a good word, like a word of encouragement to feel good. And some of us, we respond better to... I don't know, Bobby Knight, Nick, whoever, I don't know who yells in our culture right now, but whoever it is that yells, like people respond to that, right? Some people like the carrot, some people like the stick. Well, actually, most of us need a little bit of both probably. And Joshua understands and deploy, deploys both. He says, look forward because if you cling to God, if you cling to God, here's the positive. Verses 9 and 10, I won't read them. They're a description of fruitfulness, of faithfulness, okay? There, there's reward in this. You see, obedience and loving God is its own reward, to cling to God, to obey God, it's its own reward. He shows the success that they have in verses 9 and 10. So that's the positive. That's the carrot. Well, here's the stick. Walking with God is of light even in the hard times. But in case you don't get that, there is the stick that comes. Verses 12 through 13, where he talks about the cursedness. It's so vivid. I, uh, I'm going to have to get my Bible. All kinds of things happening up here. Ah, I don't have the right Bible from me. Um, do I have this? It's so vivid what he has there in verse 14. I don't have it written out. 
Ah, it's so good though. It's so good where he talks about the whips and the snares. It's so vivid, the negative effects, the negative effects of our turning away from God. But the looking forward is not just to the motivations. There's also a second aspect of looking forward, and it's the sense of keep moving, okay? Look with me at verse 4. The looking forward in the sense of keeping moving. Okay, let me give the context. Verse 4, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with the nations that have already, you have already cut off. I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. And then the key verse is verse 5. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess the land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Look forward, Joshua is saying. Some cool stuff happened in verse 3 and 4, but this is not the end of the story. There's more work to be done. We've got to keep moving forward. That's what faithfulness is. You understand, this speech by Joshua, this is not a speech to get people to come to church or to come to Sunday school. This is a speech for people who are already in Sunday school and in church. This is a speech to have them fed, encouraged to be strong so that they might go out and continue the good work of possessing the land. You see, the one question that Joshua's sermon, Joshua's speech should prompt in us is this. Based on God's promises, what is God calling me to do? What is God calling me to do? What is he calling me to look forward to? You know, we all have different tasks, we have different callings. Even the people in Joshua's times, they had different roles within the army. We have different callings. But as I like to say, there is a hole in God's kingdom that only you can fill. There's a hole in God's kingdom only you can fill. No one else has your life. No one else has your time. No one else has your resources, your relationship, your networks. Only you have your life. God has given you your life. And he will give you the possession of that to which he calls you, looking forward. God, what is God calling you to do? We have multiple callings. Our first callings are to our families, to our church, and to our jobs. But there's also callings in our community. Who is around you that God is calling you to move towards, to bring his love, mercy, and justice to? I have a special place in my heart this weekend for single parents. Uh, but not just single parents, but what about widows? Is there a widow or a single parent in your sphere of influence who needs support, somebody to come alongside them to help them? Or maybe it's something on the North Shore, something that's broken on the North Shore that needs healing. Maybe it's the great brokenness that is in our city, this great city of Chicago that is so troubled right now. There's a need for racial reconciliation, racial justice. Is God calling you into the breach? What is your response to God's promise? Be strong and courageous. You see, friends, coming to church and listening to a good talk is not the goal of the Christian life. It's not the goal even of this, the people of Joshua's time. The goal is getting out there and doing something. The church is not the mission. This is the place we come to get sent out. I read an article yesterday which said that the church is designed to be a field hospital. I love that. We're designed to be a field hospital where people who have been banged up during the week, they come back, they get fed, they get encouraged, and then they get sent back out, back out onto the field of battle to do God's work. What is God calling you? What is God calling you to do? So God calling to faithfulness means looking forward. It means looking back and looking in. But it finally it also means, the, and it's the heartbeat of this passage, it also means we are called to be faithful, to look up. Look with me at verse 14. 
in many ways, this is the heart of the entire book of Joshua. Joshua says this, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. No word of God has failed. The literal Hebrew is no falling words. No words of God have fallen to the ground. This is the theological and center point of this book. God's promises are sure and secure. Not a single promise of God's has or will fail. I mean, think about Joshua. He was born. He was born a slave in Egypt. He would have seen and experienced or heard about right before his birth of the Holocaust of the Hebrew children being thrown in the Nile, being killed. He would have known of this. By math, he would have been a slave until he was age 40. He would have been a slave till age 40. If you're under 40, he was a slave till that age. Imagine being 35 years old and reading of God's promises to the land, and you're a slave in Egypt making bricks. Imagine being 75 years old after wandering in the wilderness for 35 years. Here's the thing. Somehow Joshua trusted. In his own small way, he looked up. He's actually one of the few examples in all of the Jewish scriptures of someone whose life ends well. He appears to end his life well. You think about it, Noah, David, so many people's lives in the Old Testament, they actually don't end well. Solomon, Joshua, he trusted and obeyed. But look with me real quickly in closing, though, at verses 15 and 16. Because as he looks up, he also envisions that there's a day coming where the people will not remember and they will wander. Let me just read the last uh, line. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you when you don't cling to me, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Now this is prophetic. Joshua is looking into the future, and he's realizing that the people will not remember. They will not be faithful, and they will lose the land. And that happened. The people of Israel lost the land. God's anger was kindled against them, and he removed them from the good land. But even in that darkest hour, the promise was not snuffed out. It's like on Good Friday when there's only one light left in this church. There's just a flicker. Everything else is dark on Good Friday, and there's just this one flicker. That's what it was like. But Joshua believed that promise, that the promise would not be snuffed out. Because if you remember, the way that you say Joshua In the New Testament, the way you say Joshua in Greek is Jesus, Jesus. And the way that you say Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua. And there's almost like this sense that Joshua seems to know, even though he writes more than he understands, he intuits that, yes, this this devastation is coming, but God will be faithful to his promise because there's a true and faithful Israelite coming. There is one coming who would remember all that God did. There's one coming who would be faithful. There's one coming who would love God with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his mind. And there is one who would fill the hole in God's kingdom that only he could fill. And friends, there is one who entered into the breach, who was hung upon a cross for the sins of the world, the faithful Israelite who died for the sins of the world. And I don't think Joshua could have said his name, but Joshua intuited that he was coming. And despite this darkness that we see here, that he believed in the promise. And friends, that man has come. The true Israelite has been here. He died. He rose again. He ascended on high. He lives forever. Friends, the promises of God are sure and amen in Jesus Christ. And because that is true, 
We can look in, we can look back, we can look forward, and we can look up. And yes, we will fail. Yes, we will fail. But by faith and repentance, we can turn back to the one faithful, true one who is the Lord Jesus Christ. May his name ever be praised. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that your son is the faithful one. That he is the one who has gone before He is the one who has kept the promise, and therefore we can, even though we fail, halting, we don't always move forward in the ways you call us to, but we can turn to you again and again in faith and repentance and live out the calling that you have for each of our lives and for our life collectively. Would you do this for your name's sake? Amen.